Welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's my very great pleasure to be with you here in the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco and to welcome you to this special first of two nights of uh, performances by guests of San Francisco Ballet, the Hamburg Ballet, performing John Neumeyer's A Midsummer Night's Dream, and to welcome you to this Meet the Artist interview, which um, will, I hope, uh, enlighten you and give you some good information which will um, heighten your enjoyment of the performance you're about to see. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, the Meet the Artist interviews are produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, which is directed by Charles Chip McNeil, with adult education programming administered by Cecilia Beam. The Center for Dance Education produces many programs, including um, programs for children, both here in the Opera House and out in the community. We produce the Points of View lectures on Wednesday evenings. We produce Ballet 101 series. We produce talks on ballet and any number of other things. You can go to the ballet's website, sfballet.org, to find out more about all of this. And as many of you know, these programs are recorded for future podcasts. And I encourage you to go to the ballet's website where you can find recordings of previous interviews. Um, you can check up on the ones you missed. You can review the ones you enjoyed. And of course, you'll look for the ones that are yet to come. So again, I want to welcome you here this evening, Wednesday, February 12th, 2014. It's my very great, very great pleasure to be in conversation this evening with Mr. Lloyd Riggins, who is a principal dancer and ballet master for the Hamburg Ballet. Welcome, Lloyd. Thank you. Lloyd actually um, was born and had early training and early professional experience in the United States and then moved on to Europe where he performed with the Royal Danish Ballet before joining the Hamburg Ballet in 1995 as a principal dancer and he has become a valued ballet master as well. Many of you, no doubt, were able to enjoy his performance when San Francisco Ballet premiered um, our, our premiere of the, the Little Mermaid, which was here in oh, 2009, perhaps, or? 2010, I think. Give or take. Um, but it was Lloyd who created the role, and I believe, and performed the, um, the role. One of the incarnations of the ballet. Okay, in one of the incarnations of the ballet, created the or role the of the poet. <laughs> in Little Mermaid, and then also appears in the film. And I know that many of you have seen the film. I think they sell a video in our boutique. Um, so, again, it's an absolute delight to have you with us. Thank you. And to be able to um, help us with some of the mystique of watching one of the great European companies here in the Opera House, and to learn a little bit more about the ballet, A Midsummer Night's Dream. We may think we know the story, we may think we know all about it, but we'll find out. Um, I'm interested in, perhaps to start us off, 
um, this, the, the cross-cultural experience. And you exemplify going in one direction. You went to Europe to find a career. And I'm wondering, what was the attraction? What sent you off that direction? Well, I was 17, so the first attraction was a job. Um, I come from a dancing family. My mother founded the Southern Ballet Theater, which is now called Orlando Ballet in Florida. My brother was a dancer in New York City Ballet. My sister was a Broadway dancer. My father was an opera singer. My grandmother made costumes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was bred into the life. And I went to, in Orlando, Florida, especially at that time, there was very little to be exposed to, to great ballet companies, to be exposed to a lot of art. So every summer I would go either visit my brother in New York or go to California, visit my sister, see the shows, and, or take workshops. And my mother sent me to a Bourneville workshop in Midland, Michigan. The teachers of the Royal Danish Ballet were holding a Bourneville workshop there. I went there, they saw me, they invited me to come study in Denmark some more. I guess they felt I had a certain affinity for the Bourneville style. And my mother very wisely said, go and study. And then they offered me a contract while I was there. Um, they were hiring, for the first time in, a, in the Danish ballet's history, they were hiring foreigners, actually. This was back in 1987. And in those days, there were 110 dancers, and we were eight foreigners in the company. Um, and they needed to supplement the company with young dancers because they had a very high retirement age, being a kind of government institution. And they had quite a lot of uh, dancers who couldn't actually go on point, let's say, and things. So the 17 ballerinas they needed for a Balanchine Serenade, they sometimes had to cancel the, that program at 110 dancers. So things were starting to change. Uh, Frank Anderson was the director, and uh, I was lucky enough to be serendipity. I was there, and they were looking for dancers, and they knew I had a certain talent for Bourninville, I guess, and so I was lucky enough to be invited. And my mother, as hard as it was, I think, for her as a director to lose a dancer, a male dancer, in those days especially, it was, if you could do a double pirouette and hold up a girl, that was, you know, you were golden. But she, at the same time, had her foot in my rear and said, you better go, <laughs> or I, you know, as a mother, I have to send you, and, and I am very grateful that she, she just opened the door and sent me on my way with a lot of wonderful training. Keep your eyes open, keep your mouth shut, keep your ears open, and ask a lot of questions. And uh, plus the dance training that she gave me, which I always say, I, it was what I would say a, a very American training. It was not specific to one syllabus of ballet, not specific to one style necessarily. It was all about eclecticism and versatility. A dancer who could do everything was going to work. And this was kind of, I would say, that American, uh, you know, spirit. Just uh, figure it out and do it the best you can. And um, that helped me when I went to Denmark to kind of assimilate the, the Danish ballet style. Um, and uh, so, to say if I had a choice now, it's hard for me to say because I've been in Europe now longer than I was ever in America. So I still feel American. My spirit is American. And I think 
I bring something to a European stage in that way. Um, maybe that's my small input of, of, of spirit. Um, but I wouldn't want to have to choose one or the other. I, that has how my life, the, the, the stones were laid before me and I was just smart enough or good and, good and mom enough to, you know, to send me on my way through that path and just to, to trust it a little bit. And You've anticipated a question that I was probably close to asking, which is, um, you, we're about to say you moved on to the Hamburg Ballet. Um, we here at San Francisco Ballet welcome dancers from, I believe 40% of our company are not American. Many European companies seem to welcome American dancers. You've talked a little bit about what you might have brought to it. Um, what kinds of things in the Royal Danish, and then let's move on to the Hamburg Ballet, where you moved very shortly now in the story. Um, why were they interested in an American dancer and in other American dancers? I don't think that they are necessarily interested in, an, interested in an American dancer. I think they're interested in a dancer who will, well, in one company, the Danish Ballet, it was a matter of um, assimilation. You know, you, uh, those who found a place, who created a place or who fit in, for lack of a better word, uh, had a better time of it. And um, that's why I say when I went back to my, my sort of training in versatility and being able to take a style and find its essence and, and, and produce it physically quickly, uh, that helped me. Uh, other dancers, uh, not necessarily, but I think a dancer in a company, they have a very special fit. And I think it's a, a matter of globalization now also, that the doors are much more open. Um, I know in the Danish Ballet's uh, case, they had a very small school compared to the size of the company, and the, the school uh, wasn't able to continue to feed the company with dancers. In, in, say, if you read Eric Brun's books, mm -hmm. when he, it was 300 children auditioning for a place in the school, and nowadays it's not so. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't, in those days it was a great honor to become a, to get into the school of the Royal Danish Ballet or to become a member of that company, and now I think maybe there are many more options or it's not necessarily uh, the same mentality. Mm -hmm. Moving to Hamburg. You moved there in 95 as a principal dancer, and you have then worked with, very closely, with John Neumeyer, whom we have met. We have now, this will be his third production that, um, well, major production. I think there are some small pieces we've done over time. Um, I want to be sure we have enough time to talk about John Neumeyer's um, aesthetic as a choreographer, and specifically about Midsummer Night's Dream, perhaps we should dive right into Midsummer Night's Dream. So we're going to see a work that is one of his early works, created in 1977. Those of us who saw Nijinsky, those of us who saw Mermaid, is this going to be familiar? I think in the sense that I believe John's work touches us as human beings. I think he always tries to strive for presenting 
us humans in different situations that we can, as an audience, we can connect with the stories that are being told through the people. And uh, the, the, the instrument is also a person. And I, I think it, 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 as an art form, it is one of the closest to the, to the audience because we, we have a body ourselves and we feel things through that body. And, and um, I think every, the wonderful thing, I went from a, a, the Danish ballet working with many different choreographers and uh, a huge uh, repertoire of different choreographers to go to a company of one choreographer, but it didn't feel like that because John believes that every, um, every story he wants to tell, it, it, uh, uh, it, it needs a different language. Mermaid looks very different than the Nijinsky, the, the steps that are chosen, the, the choreography that is, comes out of him when he's making them. It, it is a, a product of the, of, the, of the work at hand. And I think that that is wonderful because with each ballet that you're dancing, you feel that it's another choreographer in one sense. It's a different style, it's a different uh, set of tools that you need to accomplish it. Um, at the same side, there is always the need for the human inside the character or the, the human inside the dancer. Um, I, I always, my favorite thing about working with John is that it is about people dancing, not about dancers in a say, let's say like in a, in a, in a, in a, a ballet bubble. We are striving to be humans dancing to, to make the connection across the orchestra pit and across the, the fourth wall um, to touch you. Is it fair to say that most of his work is dramatic or tells a story? I think so. Uh, simply said, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in Midsummer Night's Dream, most of us, I think, could probably hum the Mandelson score. Some of us know the Balanchine version, um, as Lloyd was joking with me. Oh, right, you're Americans. You know the Balanchine version. Um, and then, of course, there's the Ashton version, um, the English company's version. The European one. Yeah. Um, that uh, both use the Mendelssohn score, that we are just, as I said, we could probably all hum it. This production uses another a contrasting um, composer's music, Georgi Ligeti. Um, we actually know some of that music because I think we have some pieces in the rep to that music. Um, how does that work? Um, I think the Mendelssohn, while wonderful, uh, actually I think, I can't speak for John, but uh, he gave each layer of the, the Midsummer Night's Dream characters he gave them each a musical uh, world. The humans have the world of Mendelssohn and this wonderful light uh, summer night's dream music. When it becomes the fairy world, the fairy world in John's ballet uh, is born out of the emotions of the humans. It's a kind of a magical, the forest is kind of a magical place. The fairies in their choreography frame the human's dilemmas and stories and problems with their choreography. The fairy's choreography is, is as if to give a visual 
cue to what are the emotions going on. There's things called angry step or silver streak or they, 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 they create a, a frame with which to watch the stories of the humans. And the Oberon and Titania characters are, are born out of Hippolyta's, the queen's in the first scene, who's about to be married to a king that she hardly knows and go to a new court. And of course, it's very nerve-wracking, so she goes to sleep and with all of these doubts and with all of these fears, she goes to sleep and has this dream. And she becomes Titania and Theseus, the king, becomes Oberon and play out this sort of in a dreamlike frame, play out her fears and her doubts and her nervousness. And the music then switches to the Ligeti? When the fairy world happens, a very dramatic moment, the uh, Ligeti comes out and it, it creates this sort of bare nerve, open nerved atmosphere of uh, this kind of, it's not a nice dream. <laughs> Um, it ends up as a nice dream, but in the beginning there's a lot of problems. Uh, Demetrius doesn't love Helena, Helena loves Demetrius. Hermia and Lysander are going to be married, but she's a noble and he's a gardener, and they want to go out and run away and elope, and the king and queen don't seem to get along, and there's this guy named Philistrat who later becomes Puck, making problems for everybody, and so you have this already, this kind of very uh, nervous and this sort of minimalistic Ligeti way. There is a third element of music for the rustics, the mechanicals, the, the, uh, the uh, craftsmen who have been put together to make a play for this uh, wedding and in their sort of blundering uh, moments you will see that there is a, an organ grinder uh, providing them with music, very mechanical music and their choreography is quite that, very, very mechanical. They represent the, the simpleness of human beings and the, the, the struggle that we all have to, to try to create something and maybe the clumsiness that we, we have naturally when trying to do something that is not within our realm. You see them, they enter the wedding trying to put on this play and it's, it's just, it's, there's a certain charm that I think everyone can relate to to be in a, in a place, you know. You come into a theater like this maybe for the first time and you sort of feel very humble and rustical, you know. So you have these different, different levels of, of humanity portrayed by the three different uh, worlds of music. Fascinating. Um, looking at our time, I want to make sure that anyone who is interested in asking a question gets a chance to do that. So I'm going to ask, let you ask your question. I'll repeat the question so that we can make sure everyone hears it. And um, just before we call on you, in the interests of fairness and in time, let's try to keep questions concise. Yes.
The question is to take us back to the Royal Danish Ballet and a description of the, the distinctness of the style, I think, is the essence of the question. How can you characterize that? And before you answer, I do want to repeat, for those of you who came in late, we're speaking with um, ballet master and principal dancer Lloyd Riggins of the Hamburg Company. The Danish style, the, the, the style of August Bornenville, um, it's a very, a very special style and it's a very special situation in that it has been maintained in the Danish ballet especially for so long. The, the ballet master after Mr. Bornenville, uh, Hans Beck, and his colleagues uh, took the, the classes that they remembered and formulated them into six classes, one for each day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And these are well recorded now in books and videos and the music is printed and everything. And when I joined the Danish Ballet Company, especially as a foreigner, I had to take the apprentice classes every day. And the, the, the kids from the school, they have Bourneville class every week to uh, maintain the style and to learn the style and to learn all of the steps that go with it. And the style is really, um, a system, not a system, but it is a, it is a, a, a technique to learn how to do the choreography. This was Bourneville's intention, was um, to school his students so that they could do his choreography. I believe much as Balanchine's classes were, he, he would experiment in the class uh, to create new steps and to create his choreographic ideas within the classroom, um, as opposed to, say, the Vaganova system, which has the the method for creating a dancer. Um, in, and um, it is, I think, a, a, sometimes a difficult task in Denmark because you dance so many, even in the 1950s when Vera Volkova came to the Royal Danish Ballet uh, with the Vaganova technique to supplement the Bourneville training. Um, since then, it's always been a, a sort of a difficult balance because there are only 10 Bourneville ballets surviving but it is a very valuable technique to learn. And I, uh, I think you can see with San Francisco Ballet because Mr. Helgi is, is of that training mm -hmm. also. And you, you can point out the specific uh, attributes and, and uh, advantages mm -hmm. to this kind of training. And I think that's why there were so many uh, Danish men in the Balanchine Company. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Interesting observation, yeah. Um, another question, maybe, on this side of the house. Yes, dear. Let's see if I can, re did you hear it? What is the favorite part that you have played and why? That's the hardest question. I always like to say my favorite role is the one that I'm working on at the moment, but there have been quite a few favorites. I have a lot of favorites. I'm very lucky, let's say. Um, I danced four roles in the Midsummer Night's Dream, Puck, Oberon, Demetrius, and the donkey. And I, I couldn't tell you which one was my favorite. They were all, uh, they, to work on a role shows you something about yourself. Uh, and at the same time, you show the role something about yourself. I think each artist adds something or, or, or you give a different reading of, of the, of the role and 
and so you in turn put yourself a little bit into the role and the role gives you in return a little bit uh, a mirror to see something about your human humanity good thank you um, over here again yes here Good question. That's an amazingly wonderful question. Um, let's see if I can summarize it. <clears throat> In a work like this that tells a story, which of the movements that we will see come from an established vocabulary, and which are movements that were created uniquely to tell this story? Well, as I was saying, that the, the, the three worlds of the different characters have three worlds of music. Each world of music has its own movement vocabulary. John works uh, very intuitively. He plays the music and moves to that music uh, uh, very, very much prepared in, in the story and the sub subject and everything, but very much improvis improvisatory in the studio when it comes to the movement. The humans have the most balletic vocabulary you will see. You will recognize an arabesque, you will recognize a presage, you will recognize a double tour. Um, with John's, of course, uh, style and uh, imagination into the, the way they are put together. The fairies have a very contemporary line. Um, I won't tell you what they're wearing, I won't tell you what it's going to look like to spoil the effect, but they have a completely different uh, world of movement, which is uh, in relation to the Ligeti music. The rustics, the craftsmen, the Handwerker we say in German, they have a, a very mechanical way of moving. And uh, I think it's a wonderful uh, talent of John's to, to be able to create so many different levels in one piece. And still, you don't feel that you, you don't know what to look at. He's a, also a master storyteller and directs your eye to see all the pieces you need to see to follow the story with these many Shakespeare characters. There's 10 at least you know, that you have to kind of keep track of, but you won't have any problem with it. We have time for one more question if it's a fairly short one. Do you see any hands? Oh, there's one right there. He says, Puck has the final word in the Shakespeare play. Is that the case in this piece? Am I going to tell you how it ends? <laughs> no. I will tell you, I can paraphrase the Shakespeare in a way that having danced Puck myself, at a certain point in the piece, the basic theme of the whole piece is love. The, the human capacity for love and all of its problems and, and resolutions and 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 in the end, Puck really just looks at the audience and says, this was about love, and we give this to you. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece in that way. It just, it's, it's really like a, 
a gift to the audience about love. It's been a very great pleasure for us to be here this evening. Um, I want to remind you that we have many programs that you can learn about on the San Francisco Ballet's website, sfballet.org. And we hope to see many of you at future San Francisco Ballet performances. Thank you. I've been speaking with Lloyd Riggins. This has been really informative and delightful. It's been great to meet you. Enjoy this evening's performance. <laughs>